Our sermon this morning is entitled, God's Righteous Judgment Against Unrighteousness and Sin. We're going to be working from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. So turn to Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, um, you can find Romans chapter 1 on page 883. So turn there, uh, and we're going to look at a few verses from the, the last part of Romans chapter 1. Uh, up until now, we've been looking at the book of Romans. We saw Paul kind of lay his theological foundation in the first few verses, who he is, an apostle of Jesus, who Jesus is, the Son of Man, Son of God, died for sin, raised from the dead. Uh, chapter or Verses 8 through 15, uh, Paul kind of communicated his longing to come to the people uh, in Rome so that he can preach the gospel, encourage them so that they can be saved and built up and strengthened by his presence. In verses 16 through 17 last week, uh, Paul kind of communicated his gospel message, right? That, that there's a righteousness that is revealed from God, that is required by God to be accepted into his presence, and he gives the righteousness that is required to those who trust in Christ, to those who believe in Jesus with, with faith. So that's kind of where we've been uh, up until now in the book of Romans. Now, for that thesis, for that, that, that gospel that we saw in, first chap, in verses 16 through 17, he's going to spend the rest of the letter unpacking that. The, the righteousness of God imputed to sinners through faith in Christ. That's going to be the next 16 chapters is, is Paul explaining and working through that and, and working through the implications of that gospel message. Now, in order to establish that message, the first thing that you have to do, if you want to, to establish or to prove to someone that God saves sinners by faith when they trust in Christ and he imputes his righteousness to them so that they can be made acceptable to him and reconciled into his presence. If you want to establish that gospel, the first thing that you have to do is establish that human beings are in fact sinful and unrighteous and they stand under God's righteous judgment. If, if, if human beings are not sinful and if we are not deserving of and, and um, standing in the path of God's judgment and wrath, then there is no, not only is there no gospel, there's no need for a gospel at all. So chapter, chapters 1 through 3, Romans 1 through 3, the rest of Romans 1 uh, all the way through chapter 3 is kind of Paul uh, like proving that plank, establishing that premise, right? That, that, that humanity is in fact sinful, guilty, stands uh, guilty before God and is deserving of his uh, wrath and, and judgment. Now, if you wanted to prove that, if you wanted to prove that premise, that humanity is guilty, Paul does, you have to, he does it in segments. He takes it in two kind of big chunks. First, he proves that uh, what we're looking at today, that, that Gentiles, people outside of the nation of Israel, are guilty before God. And so that could kind of be analogous to today, uh, people who are not religious, people who don't consider themselves to be uh, among the people of God, people who don't identify as believers. And then in chapter 2, he kind of establishes the, the other chunk, which is the nation of Israel, members of the nation of Israel, which again, today, would kind of be analogous to people who identify as the people of God, people who identify as Christians, people who consider themselves to be moral and righteous and religious people. So non-religious people and religious people, he's going to take them in sequential order in chapter 1 and chapter 2, establish that all of us are guilty before God, and therefore all of us need a Savior who is Jesus. Now, when you're looking to establish those two premises, that, that non-religious people are guilty before God, religious people are guilty before God, there are kind of two 
uh, kind of classic objections. There's, there's one classic objection for either class of people, either group of people that you would expect to have to deal with, right? If you're dealing with religious people, righteous people, moral people, people who are, you know, identify as the people of God, what would the, the objection be to the premise that they are guilty and need a savior, right? If, 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 uh, if someone were to try to explain to you why Mother Teresa was guilty before God and needed a savior to save her from her sins, the objection might be, that's ridiculous. She's such a, she's such a good person. She's so righteous. She's so moral. Look at all the good things that she did. Look at how she poured her life out in charity for others, right? right? The idea that the righteous people of God are good people, maybe so good that they that, that God would never render them a, a guilty verdict, and therefore they don't need a Savior. That's the objection that Paul deals with in chapter 2. We're going to get there next week, right? Righteous people don't need a Savior because they're so righteous and so religious and so moral. What's the objection that you would think um, you would deal with about non-righteous people, un- people who are far from God, who don't identify as believers? If, if I were to tell you, you know, if I were to try to establish to you that someone who was born and lived and died and never heard the gospel, I was trying to establish to you that that person stood guilty before God and deserving of God's righteous wrath and judgment. You know, the, the, the objection might come, that's not fair, right? If they didn't have an opportunity, if they never heard the gospel, if they were never exposed to the word of God, that how could God possibly be fair in judging that person if they never heard, never had a chance to respond? God would never do that. That's the objection that Paul deals with today, right now in Romans 1. So, so there, there are objections to, to establishing that non-religious people who are far from God are guilty before God, and religious people who or identifies the people of God are guilty before God, and Paul kind of takes them one by one. So today we're going to look at the, the non-religious, the people who are not, quote-unquote, the people of God. How are they, how is it that God can bring his righteous judgment against them? So I'm going to read through uh, verses 18 through 32. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend some time kind of considering that idea, the righteous judgment of God against unrighteousness and sin. It reads... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen and perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not to be done. And they, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on our time together this morning as we sit under the authority of your word. We pray that you would quiet our hearts, speak to us, help us, sanctify us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of men. So, so God is in heaven. God is righteous. Right? God sees humanity, sees how they behave, it, and he's not indifferent to it. He, he's not unconcerned with it. He uh, is angered by it. It evokes his wrath. God cannot accept or allow sin to go unchecked or to go unresponded to. He's angered by it. It, it evokes his wrath. And it says that his wrath is revealed uh, against men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that word unrighteousness, we've already seen used multiple times just here in this verse to be contrasted with the word righteousness that is used in the previous verse about God. He's, Paul's setting up a contrast. God is righteous. God is holy. Humanity is unrighteous. Humanity, uh, you know, rebels against and, and, and um, you know, is in violation of the righteousness and the holiness of God. But specifically, the unrighteousness of humanity, the the form that it takes, the way that it expresses itself is that humanity suppresses the truth, who by their unrighteousness suppress the, the truth. So he's saying that He's saying that human beings, sinful human beings have this bent, have this inclination uh, not to see and observe and be, you know, um, interested by and and respond rightly to the righteousness of God and the the commands of God. They have an inclination to to suppress and push down and out of sight, out of mind. I I don't want to hear it or see it or or think about it, right? Humanity kind of wants to reserve the right to uh, plead ignorant, right? Like, I want to suppress the truth about God so that I can claim ignorance about. I, I, can, I can have an excuse as to why I am not accountable to or, or don't have to abide by. You know, like, if, if you, what does everyone say when the police officer pulls you over and asks you, do you know how fast you were going? No, of course I don't know how, of course I don't know how fast I was going. 
But of course, you, like no one ever drives and doesn't know how fast they're going. You know how fast you're going, but everyone, like it's it, you know, everyone tends to kind of plead ignorance as soon as you're in a position where you're, you know, where if you're in a position where knowledge equals accountability, knowledge equals culpability, then ignorance is a convenient card to play, right? No, everyone has a everyone has a really great memory when it comes to remembering who owes you money. But everyone is awfully forgetful when it comes to the money that you owe, right? I can, rem- in, I can remember with painful detail, you know, I can remember the serial number on the $20 bill that I gave to someone 10 years ago. But if someone says I owe them $20, you'd think that I had just, I have amnesia, I just got in a car accident, right? I have no, I have no idea what you're even what you're even talking about. And so Paul's saying, uh, that's, the, that's the human nature kind of response to the righteousness of God. We want to suppress it. We want, we want plausible deniability. We want to actively get rid of it so that we are not accountable to it. But what that implies, right, the fact that humanity suppresses the truth about God, it, it implies that. It kind of presupposes that we know spiritual truths about God, right? We are not unaware of them. We're not, we want to be unaware of them. We want to be ignorant of them, but we're not. Just by nature, we're not. We're, we're actively, right? No one, good, bad, young, old, righteous, secular, every single person on the planet, if they're being really honest in their heart of hearts, deep down, they have some semblance of knowledge about God. They have knowledge about the truth of God. They have knowledge um, about, right? No, no one is completely and totally unaware of or ignorant of spiritual truths about God, which means that rebelling against God isn't just a matter of ignorance. I would have done it. I wouldn't have done it if I had known better. I, I, if I had known the gospel, I would have believed it. But it's an act of the will. It's something that we're actively doing, suppressing the truth about God. So, you know, the, the guy who's intellectually brilliant and he's read all of the textbooks and he's a, you know, a evolutionary biologist or he's a, you know, a philosopher who, you know, doesn't believe that God exists because he thinks that it's just a crutch for people that are weak or they're people that aren't smart enough to, to really know the truth like he knows. Like that guy knows that God exists. He might, cl- he might not think, right, he might make claims to the contrary, but deep down inside he knows that God exists and along with anyone and everyone that you can kind of, in any category of person that claims to not believe in God, what's going on is not just an objective analysis of the facts, arriving at the conclusion that God doesn't exist, but rather it's it's a proactive suppressing of truth that's readily available and that's written on your heart, that's, that's, that's at your disposal that you don't want to see or, or know. No one can, no one's going to stand before God and say, God, you can't blame me. It wouldn't be fair for you to blame me because I didn't know that you existed because there's a, an active suppression of truth about God that happens in the, the human heart. And here's how Paul says, here's how Paul justifies that, right? Here's how he can say that human beings suppress the truth about God, even if they have, even if they're far from God, even if they've never gone to church, never heard the gospel, because they all have access to some degree of spiritual truth about God. We've seen the next two verses. For what can be known about God is plain to them, even if they've never gone to church. 
Never heard the gospel. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature, these things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So therefore, they are without excuse. So the character of God and the glory of God can be seen all around us when we look at the creation that God has made that we ourselves are a part of. Right? When you look at a building, you naturally assume that it was made by a builder. When you look at a painting, you assume that it was made by a painter. Read a book, you assume it was written by an author. When you look at the creation, the world, the creation, you assume that it was made by a creator. So, so this idea that, that, um, right, that, that someone could claim that they had zero access to any spiritual truth about God, right, zero ability to know anything about God, Paul says that is, that's only possible if you were not created by God and if you don't live in the midst of a world that was created by God. So given that we were all created by God in his image, living in a world that he made, none of us can claim to have zero access to truth about God, right? We can look and just looking at the creation, we can realize that there is a creator who's big and strong and sovereign and powerful and wise and, and ordered and that he appreciates beauty and that he's actively involved in maintaining and caring for his creation, right? These are spiritual truths that you can arrive at without even owning a Bible, ever hearing of Christianity. Theologians have, a, have terms called uh, general revelation and special revelation. So special revelation is when God reveals uh, you know, something to his people in a special way, speaks to them, gives them his word, appears to them and tells them something. General revelation is just that, which the, the ways that God has revealed himself to anyone and everyone in general, just by virtue of being a human being on this planet. Psalm 19 says... The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the, the world. So general revelation, everyone can see and know some truths about God just by virtue of being a human being living in this world. Now, the catch is, general revelation in and of itself looking at the world, determining that it must have a maker, determining that there's someone who's bigger than you who created you, who has ownership rights over you who you are accountable to that knowledge that could be derived from general revelation is not necessarily enough for a person to become saved and to be reconciled to God, right? Paul's very clear elsewhere in the letter of Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. So in order to be saved from your sin and reconciled to God, it requires special revelation from God. God has to specially give his word to sinful humanity so that they can know who Jesus is and trust in him and be reconciled to God, right? Special revelation is required, which is why evangelism is as important as it is. It's why 
missions are as important as they are, right? That's why we should be actively praying for, sharing the gospel with our non-Christian friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members. It's why we should be supporting missionaries to travel across cultures, to unreached people groups, to, to share the gospel and to, you know, see people respond to it, right? Evangelism and missions are really important because special revelation is required for a person to be saved. But special revelation, according to Paul here, is not required in order to render a person guilty before or without excuse before their creator. That, all that's needed for that is just general revelation. Just the, the, the idea that, like, again, realizing that the universe is a big place and you are a tiny little part of it and there is someone who made you that you are accountable to, these are all conclusions that you can arrive at without ever hearing the, the gospel. And so therefore, we, they, all of humanity stands without excuse. No one can come before God and demand that God acquit them on the basis of their having not had the knowledge that was necessary to respond rightly to him. All of us are going to stand before God and say, I'm guilty. You are right and just in declaring me guilty because of the preponderance of evidence that I had for you. And my failure or refusal to respond rightly to it by trusting in you, and instead my active response of suppressing the truth that was readily available to me. So, what does that mean for the, for the guy who grow, grow, you know, grows up on an island, live, born, lives, dies, never hears the gospel, no missionary ever comes to him? What happens to that person? Before we speculate one way or the other, we can at least start by what we know, right? What we know for sure from the book of Romans is that that person stands before God who created him without excuse. They don't have a free pass. They don't get an inside track. They're not unaccountable to God by virtue of having not heard special revelation from God. We know that if God punishes that person, sends them to hell, that's not an unjust response from God. God is just and right and good to do that. We also know from the book of Romans that the only way that any person can be saved, reconciled to God, and go to heaven is through trusting in Christ. There's no other way for that to happen. So, so God is not unjust if he consigns that person to judgment and the only way that that person can escape God's judgment is through trusting in Christ. And so, then there's all the hypotheticals, right? What, what happens? Well, you know, for all we know, the person who grows up on an island, sees God's creation, he's overwhelmed by a sense of his own smallness and his accountability to his creator who he happens not to know their name. It could very well be that God sends a missionary to that person who preaches the gospel and they hear it and respond and trust in Christ. It could be that seeing the creation around them and kind of being overwhelmed by their accountability to their creator that they don't know sets them on a path, right, that, that eventually leads to them coming into contact with a believer who shares the gospel with them. Could, I mean, it could be that God, in his sovereignty, speaks directly to and, and specially to them in a dream or vision and 
you know, proclaims the gospel to them and they hear it and believe it and be saved. There's any number of ways that 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 person could escape God's judgment, but certainly what does not happen is that he stands before God and demands that God acquit him on the basis of his having not heard the, the truth of the gospel. It would not be wrong or unjust for God to punish anyone and everyone who has ever lived. And the only way for anyone and everyone to be saved is to trust in, in Christ. That's kind of the, what, we're, what we take away from Romans 1 and then on through the rest of the, the book of Romans, is that we are without excuse. We have no leverage. We have no ability to negotiate with God. We stand before God silent and without excuse. And then for the rest of chapter 1, Paul kind of walks through the effects of sin in the life and in the heart of human beings, right? What, what, what it does and kind of how it runs its course. It says, for although they knew God, right? Although they were created in God's image and live in a world that God made where his, evident, his attributes are clearly visible, although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they were foolish. They exchanged the glory of God for images resembling men and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul says the starting point for sin, right? What, how, where all sin comes from, the the swamp in which any sin that you could envision, right? The, The place where it breeds and dwells and grows out of is that of idolatry, right? The, 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 place, the, the place where sin is born out of is a heart that has exchanged the glory of God for, uh, for created things. It's kind of replaced the creator with the creation and is worshiping the creation instead. Right? The, the, the thrust of Scripture, kind of the, the, the through line of Scripture is that God has created human beings. God has created them to honor him and praise him and worship him because God himself is deserving of all honor and praise and and worship. So our job as created beings is to uh, celebrate how great God is. And the essence of sin is to refuse to celebrate how great God is and to celebrate someone else or something else in place of, of God. Right? We take mortal things, finite things, and worship them instead of the immortal finite God. God's intention for the created world. So God creates the world. God creates humanity, puts them in the world, and here's God. You've got God, the world, and humanity. The idea, God's vision is God is deserving of, worthy of all worship, and the world is to be enjoyed and, and experienced. And, and, you know, pleasure is to be derived from it. So, the, so human beings, our job is to enjoy the world, the created things, and to worship God. The problem is, um, when we fail to or refuse to enjoy the world, right? Enjoy the world and then let your enjoyment of the world that God has made drive you to worship God, right? Let it cultivate um, affection for the Creator, right? Enjoy the creation, let it cultivate affection for the Creator. Enjoy the creation, let it stir your affections for the Creator. The problem is when we uh, stop enjoying the creation and start worshiping the creation in place of the Creator. Right? So, food, drink, 
relationships, family, home, career, money, possessions, right? You name it, fill in the blank, right? Those things are created by God to be enjoyed. They're created by God to be used and leveraged for the worship of God and for the glory of God. But if we take what God created to be good, but we treat it as if it is ultimate, we treat it as if it is the the greatest good that there is, then that is unseating and displacing God from the throne that he rightly should be sitting on in our lives and on our hearts and putting something else there in, in front of it, right? Take money. money. Money in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Earn money, save money, spend money, use money. But the love of money, the, the worship of money, according to First Timothy, is the root of all kinds of evil. Right When we stop just enjoying it, but we start uh, you know, loving it and worshiping it. Right? It's not bad to have a career, work hard, invest in your career, be a good employee, be a good boss. But when you prioritize your career over anything and everything, neglecting your family, right, that, then it becomes idolatry. If you're married, enjoy your spouse. If you're single, aspire toward toward marriage, right? Uh, you know, ma- marriage is a, is a good thing. It's to be enjoyed, but it's not to be worshipped, right? If you're, if you're married and you kind of put the weight, if, if you expect and demand that your spouse give you meaning in your life and fulfill your, your deepest desires that only God can do, that's a form of idolatry. If you're single and you're looking forward to marriage, expecting that it will, presuming that it will fulfill your deepest desires, and give your life meaning like only God can do, that's a form of of idolatry. So Paul says, sin starts there. Sin starts with exchanging the glory of God for images and for created things and worshiping them instead of worshiping God, the creator of those things. And here's here's the response that that prompts from God. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creator rather than or the creature rather than the, the creator. So just like the word exchanged is used multiple times in this passage to kind of emphasize and reiterate the idolatrous nature of the human heart, this phrase God gave them up is is used multiple times in reference to kind of an enigmatic idea, to be honest. I mean, it refers to God literally giving a person over to their sin, allowing for sin to run its course in that person's life and in their heart until it, it literally, until it just destroys them from the inside, right? The, the, the idea in Scripture is that God loves his people, God pursues his people, right? All through Scripture, God has been loving and pursuing it. Even as they turn away from him, even as they rebel against him, even as they run the other direction, God is pursuing them. Through the incarnation, God is pursuing them. Through giving him his word, God is pursuing his people. The Holy Spirit pursues the people of God, convicts them of sin, draws them to faith in Christ. God is continually pursuing his people, even as they are continually rebelling against him. And verse 24 seems to imply that there is a point, there is a threshold at which God stops pursuing someone. They have 
thrown themselves into, into sin and idolatry so much that God just says, right, like, if, if, the, if the idea of God's relationship with humanity is he creates them in his image and he says, your job is to look back at me, your creator, and say, your will be done, God, then at some point, after some amount of rebellion and rejection, God will say, all right, then, then your will be done, right? If you want sin instead of me, you can have it. If you're convinced that, that this created thing that you are worshiping will give you life and joy and happiness, then, then have at it. It won't, but if you're convinced that it will, in spite of all the ways that I've pursued you and tried to save you, then go for it. I'm not going to stop you. So God allows sinners to run towards sin and experience the consequences of sin, emptiness, shame, regret, judgment, wrath. There's a point where God gives sinners over to their sin so that they can chase after it in full measure and then be punished accordingly. I think this is, so this is a weird and a hard concept to grasp. I think it's supposed to be. I think this is the same thing that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 12 when he says that, you know, for those who have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's a sin that can never be forgiven. If you speak a word against the Son, that can be forgiven. But if you speak a word against the Holy Spirit, that can never, right? Christians think, a lot of people think that is a reference to some sort of magical phrase or combination of words that if you accidentally say it, then you can never be forgiven, even if you trust in Jesus to save you, which is not what that means. What, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 12, this, this sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that will never be forgiven, he's saying the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life to pursue you and draw you to faith in Christ and convict you of sin and invite you to be reconciled to God, if you reject that enough persistently, if you are continually rejecting and, and even blaspheming the ministry of and the pursuit of the Holy Spirit in your life and in your heart, at some point God stops pursuing you. He gives you over to your, to your desire for sin. I think it's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 6 when he says that there are people who have tasted the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they've been exposed to God's word and they've walked away from it and rejected from it and if they do that then it is impossible for them to be saved and to be brought back to repentance. He's saying that there's a point where after prolonged exposure to continually, repeatedly hearing the gospel proclaimed to you over and over, maybe even identifying as a believer for, for a season, there's a point where after you've been exposed to the gospel so much and you've rejected it in your heart so emphatically, so repeatedly that, that you're just given over to sin and to the effects of, of sin. So there's something, there's some sort of threshold where, where a sinner can reject God enough. It's not a magical phrase that you need to worry, have I accidentally committed the, the unforgivable sin? Or it's, not a, you know, it's not something that you need to worry, uh, can I lose my salvation? Because that's not something that can be, can be done. But rather, it's a continual, repeated rejection of God, rejection of the gospel, rejection of, of the pursuit of the Holy Spirit to draw you to faith in Christ over and over and over where God finally says, then I'm just going to withdraw. I'm just going to, to stop pursuing you anymore and let sin run its course in your, in your life. Now the catch is, 
If you trust in Christ, then that hasn't happened, can't happen. And we have no way of, when we look at anyone else, whether they've trusted Christ or not, we have no way of knowing whether that has or has not happened because the, the evidence in Scripture is that Jesus saves really, really bad sinners. Jesus saves sinners who you would think, looking at them, certainly this thing, whatever it is, has happened to them, right? Prostitutes, tax collectors, murder. Paul himself, the guy who wrote this letter, was a murderer, persecuting Christians. If anyone, if you look at anyone and think, oh, that is them, they have, God has given them over to their sin for it to run its course, you would think that it was Paul, but Jesus saved Paul just like other people. So we can never look at anyone and assume that they've been given over to their, you know, to, to, to some place that's irreparable or some place where they can no longer come to know Christ. We should never stop pursuing, sharing the gospel with, hoping and trusting and praying that God will save any, anyone, any, any sinner of any stripe. But we should also know that sin is so dangerous that as it infects and runs its course in the life of a human being, this is potentially where you could end up, right? Completely victimized by sin, completely accountable to God because of your, your sin. It should bring about a sober, sober-mindedness. Verse 26 shows another form that this uh, kind of idolatry can kind of, another, another way that sin can express itself as idolatry starts to work its way through the, the bloodstream. God gave them over to, to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men gave up natural relations and were consumed with passion for one another, shameless acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So another form that sin can express itself in is, is that of sexual sin. Idolatry can, can manifest itself in sexual sin. And a specific mention of, of homosexual behavior Right? The, the, the Bible's very clear that sex is not, inher- is not in and of itself inherently bad. Sex is a gift from God that he wants people to enjoy. It's not like theft or dishonesty or coveting, right? Where it's, where it's just inherently bad. Sex is a gift from God that we should enjoy. It's just to be enjoyed specifically within the confines of marriage. And marriage is an institution invented by God given to humanity between one man and and one woman. So, sex is not bad, but any form of sexual behavior outside of the confines of marriage is sinful and should be avoided. So, homosexual behavior is sinful, just like any form of sexual behavior with any person other than your spouse. Right? The Bible... Right, like the Bible, the Bible gives a lot of latitude on uh, how and when you know on on sexual intimacy and and how and when it's to be enjoyed. There's a lot of latitude there. The, the only thing that's narrow is that it has to be with your spouse in the confines of of marriage. So the Bible encourages sexual intimacy with your spouse, but only with your spouse. And Paul is yeah, and Paul is saying that one of the ways that sin and idolatry expresses itself when we exchange the truth about God for a lie is that we venture into sexual behavior that is outside of 
that prescribed space from, from God. So homosexual behavior is sin. Sexual behavior with someone you're not married to is sin, premarital sex, extramarital adultery. Ending your marriage without having biblical grounds to do so so that you can go marry someone else and have sex with them, that is sin. Looking at people with lustful intent is sin, including pornography and all kinds of sexual misconduct, right? So, so there's this big kind of, right, uh, there's, there's a lot of latitude for how married people enjoy sex together, but then everything outside of that is, is outside of God's prescribed way to enjoy sex. And here's the thing, is that we're all sinners. But even more specifically than that, we are all sexual sinners. No matter who you are, no matter what your temperament is, what your situation is, all of us are sexual sinners. All of us has committed some sort of sexual sin at some point in our lives. All of us experience temptation toward some sort of sexual sin in one way or another to one degree or another. That's just part of what it means to live as a human being in a world that is fallen and affected by sin. So all of us are sexual sinners, which means that we don't necessarily need to single out homosexual behavior as if it were the only form of sexual sin. But we also don't need to ignore homosexual behavior as if it were not a form of sin. I've heard an argument made before. I've heard it a lot, actually. I was a religion major in college. I've had a lot of conversations about religion and theology with a lot of people with a lot of different worldviews, but I've heard a lot. In fact, most of the times when this topic comes up, what I'll hear from people that are just vaguely familiar with the Bible is that the Bible doesn't really talk about homosexual behavior. It doesn't actually teach that it's sinful. The New Testament doesn't really talk about it. The only place that it's mentioned in the Bible is some random obscure verse in Leviticus where it says you're not supposed to. But actually right next door to that verse is a verse that says you're not supposed to wear a shirt made of two different kinds of fabric. And then another verse that says you're not supposed to have, like, you're not supposed to get a layered, tapered haircut, right? All of your hair has to be one length on your head and not different lengths on your head. So it's like, well, obviously we, we throw those away, right? Like, no one thinks that it's sinful to have bangs. And no one thinks it's sinful to wear a shirt that's 50% cotton, whatever, right? Like, so if we, if we throw those away, because they're just like, they're, they're a, a, a specific thing for a specific time, and we don't really think that they have relevance today, then why don't we think the same thing about this other verse that talks about homosexual behavior? The problem is that that's not true of what the Bible says about sexuality at all, let alone homosexual behavior. Uh, all through Scripture, Paul, God, God is clear about sexuality. Jesus is clear that sexuality is specifically to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage and that marriage is specifically between one man and one woman. Paul is clear here about the sinfulness of homosexual behavior and that homosexual behavior, like all forms of sexual sin, is, is, happens and comes about as the result of idolatry kind of working its way through the bloodstream of the, the human heart. Sexual sin is one thing that Paul points to first. In verse 28, he continues. 
since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, there's that phrase again, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So, he's quick right on the heels of this mention of homosexuality to say the giving them up stuff does not only involve homosexual behavior, it also involves right, do, the doing of all kinds of things that ought not to be done, like verse 29, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, right? We're already, we're already you know, see this, this word righteousness is just used over and over again. So, so unrighteousness to be contrasted with the, the righteousness of, of God, right? Uh, covetousness is the 10th commandment. Malice is the sixth commandment. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. So we've got, he's reiterating the 10th and 6th commandments again. He adds the ninth commandment of, of lying when he says deceit. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. There's the fifth commandment. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. This is not a flattering picture of humanity, of the human heart, as it rebels against and runs away from God and the righteous commands of God. It starts with idolatry, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and and it manifests itself, it, it ends with and manifests itself with any and every form of sin you could imagine, right? This all started back in verse 21 with idolatry, and by now here in verse 31, we have arrived at any sin, any form of rebellion, any form of behavioral rebellion that you could possibly conceive of. Which, well, that's how, that's how sin works, right? Uh, sin, Paul, the reason why Paul kind of draws that through line of starts with idolatry, which then expresses itself in all forms of, of sin and rebellion, is that that's what, I mean, all, all sin, all, any form of sinful behavior that you could conceive of is itself born out of idolatry that starts with and resides in the heart. Martin Luther said that it's impossible to break any commandment in the Bible without first breaking the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? That, that I am God and you are to worship me alone, right? The first two commandments deal with idolatry and then the next eight, along with all of the other 600 plus commands in the Bible, Right? All of those behavioral sins are all themselves born out of idolatry in the heart. You can't break any command of God without first breaking the first, right? You know, swearing, Sabbath, parents, murder, adultery, theft, lying, coveting, right? The, 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 the rest of the Ten Commandments, you can't break any of those without first worshiping something other than God. In, right? You don't lie for no reason. No one's ever told a lie for no reason. You tell a lie because telling a lie is going to get you something that you want. Something that you care about more than you care about God. You don't steal for no reason. You steal because you want something more than you want to obey God. What you do behaviorally flows out of what you love in your heart. So as we seek to address behavioral sins and overcome them in our lives, we should also be looking inward to our heart and seeking to cultivate affection for God and worshiping God so that the old desires for sin will be expelled by new desires 
to love and obey and worship God. Then finally, verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Right? So, so sin is not, sin's like, I shouldn't say this with the pain, but it's like the virus, right? It's not content to just reside in its host and destroy its host from the inside out. It's, it's got this viral self-replicating effect where it wants to, you know, spread itself to others. It's not enough for me to do these things and to rebel against God in these ways. I want you to do it with me. I want you to approve of my sin. I want to give approval to you as you join me in sin with me. I want this sin to become normal. I want to, I want to flip the moral economy so that so that sin is good and virtuous and loving and faithfulness to God is wrong and evil and, and, and hateful. That's what humanity does and that's what sin does as it works itself through the human heart and the human culture. It takes them captive, holds them hostage, turns morality upside down with the intent of rendering them completely powerless against sin in their lives, completely without excuse before their God who created them and that they are accountable to. That's God's righteous judgment against unrighteousness and sin. Friends, don't dabble with sin in your life. Don't try to coexist with it. Don't underestimate the power and the danger of it, whether it's sexual sin and inappropriate relationships or content or whether it's other kinds of sin, pride, selfishness, anger, entitlement, combativeness, rudeness, right? Whatever the sin is, don't underestimate its power to overcome you. Be ruthless in how you deal with it and seek to be killing sin or your sin will be killing you, right? If this, if this text is true, if what Paul's saying here is true, then if you dabble with sin and play around with sin, if you give sin space to grow and accumulate power, it can drive you away from God, harden your heart toward God, and eventually cause God to give you over to it so that it ruins your life and, and invites the judgment of God in your life for eternity. I don't say that to scare you or to undermine the assurance that we can and should have in Christ in the gospel. I say it to I say it so that we can have clarity and sober-mindedness about how dangerous sin is. Like I said before, you can't lose your salvation. It's not something that you need to worry about. You don't need to lose sleep over that. God doesn't lose his children. Once God saves someone, he keeps them. So you can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. You fake it by 
identifying as a Christian while knowingly, intentionally, unrepentantly harboring sin, cultivating sin, giving sin space to to grow and overtake you little by little. So let's be a church that fights against sin and fights to trust in Christ, a church that remembers the person and work of Jesus, what he's done for us so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and have victory over sin. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to celebrate communion together this morning. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Christ, if you are a a part of the people of God, then, then this is our opportunity to remember the gospel together and to celebrate the gospel together as a family. I'm going to pray in just a minute. Uh, after, after I do, and once the musicians come up, you can, you can uh, come forward, come forward kind of down the, the center aisle here and then back to your seats along the, the sides. Um, receive the elements. The crackers are gluten-free. The, the, it's grape juice. And then just take a moment to repent of your sin. Take a moment to receive the grace that God has given you. Take a moment to rejoice that we have been reconciled to God and then just eat and drink right there at your, at your seat. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because the Bible teaches against that. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ, to trust in him, to save you from your sin, to save you from his wrath so you can be reconciled to God forever, to enjoy his love and his presence. Father in heaven, we acknowledge the, the wrath of God that is coming against ungodliness and unrighteousness and sin. Lord, we pray that you would give us the, the gift of repentance to fight against sin and overcome it. Lord, we know deep down that there are truths about you. We pray that you would keep us from suppressing them and denying them. Instead, Lord, help us to worship you in our hearts so that we can glorify you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.